0: Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast. I'm Dr. Nadina Hulla, and I'm an ecological engineer and technologist. In this 10-part series, I will be interviewing entrepreneurs and innovators about their technologies for building greener and smarter cities, asking them the questions that could help you grow your tech-driven, nature-based enterprise. This week, I'm speaking to Fabio Duarte research scientist at MIT's Sensible City Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Nadina. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: So great to catch up and talk about some of the work at MIT Sensible City Lab and touch upon uh, some of the work that we've been able to collaborate on together. Can you give uh, the people a little bit of an introduction into who you are?
2: My name is Fabio Duarte. Uh, My background is urban planning. And I came to MIT around eight years ago. To work at the Sensible City Lab. And the lab, what we try to do is to not only fill the gap between the digital and the physical and social layer of the cities, but when we have this in connection between these layers, find new ways of understanding the city, but then of designing better cities. This is the main realm of the lab. And how we do that, we try to combine people from different disciplines. So we have biologists, working with environmentalists, but also computer scientists, mathematicians, designers, and urban planners. So I think this combination of multiple disciplines looking to a single phenomenon, which is the urban phenomenon, I think it's what makes the work of the lab pretty interesting because we can see see city from multiple perspectives.
1: A large part of that, of course, is applying technology in innovative ways. So, so what are some of the ways that MIT Sensible City Lab has applied technology to solve some urban problems?
2: We have two approaches. One of them we call the opportunistic approach, which means that we carry with us technology all the time. Obviously, cell phone is the most pervasive way. But when you flash your toilet, when you open your tap, when you turn on your TV, everything that we do in-house, but also when we go outside and we drive a car, take a subway, we are generating data. And some of this data, they are recorded and made available, even if we don't know exactly. For instance, every time that we tweet something, it's there, available for everyone. But also we can collect these tweets and we can see in each time of the day, people were tweeting more about what and where these people are coming from. The first thing that we do is let's try to understand society and city with these opportunistic data, meaning data is already there, available. It's only a matter of trying to collect them. But also we have another portion is that sometimes we need to understand a specific phenomenon and we don't have data available. So what we do, we design the sensor and deploy the sensor. One example of that is when we were trying to see what kind of biological material we have in wastewater in cities, we designed and deployed small robots, the kind of automatic samplers that we can deploy in different parts of the city to collect and filter wastewater before bringing to the land.
1: Right, what are some of the common misconceptions or misunderstandings that people might have when it comes to applying technology?
2: The first misconception is that when we have a new technology, we need almost to erase all the previous technologies as if they were useless. The best example is this project that I just described using wastewater, because what this project does is almost to rethink how great a sewage system is. And we don't care much because they are there for more than 100 years. When we have the system, some places we don't, but when we have the system, we don't think about a sewage network. It's there, somebody's taking care. But actually, now that we have these new technologies, we can look back to these old technologies and see some powerful information that they carry. And we're not taking into consideration because we did not have the tools. So I think this is the misconception is that any new technology inevitably erases the previous technology, and it does not.
1: And when it comes to building these sustainable future cities, there is an important role when it comes to urban ecosystems, the underlying ecosystems and the urban ecology of cities. What's your take on this?
2: One project that we we did a few years ago that I I think we tried to to address, it's called Tripedia. And in this project, we took the opportunistic data approach that I was mentioning before, and it was the following. So we do have Google Street View images for hundreds of cities around the world. It's pretty nice You go there. You see your neighborhood, your, your street, your house, but what else? And then we thought, okay, what if we could quantify the amount of greenery that we have in cities from the pedestrian viewpoint. It's true that when we have satellite imagery, we can detect trees in parks, even in in streets. But sometimes when we are walking in a street, not only the trees that are there make sense, but also all the greenery. So if we have a green wall, if we have the bushes or everything is there, helps you as a human being to feel better in that environment. What we did, we thought, okay, perhaps if we can develop some machine learning techniques and computer vision. So we put all these images together and we detect in all Google Street View images available for any city, the amount of greenery that we have there. And we start doing this and we start with five cities and now we are with almost 30 cities.
1: So what's been the reaction so far? Because I think Treepedia as a project got a ton of media attention when it came out.
2: The reaction unfolded in different phases. The first phase was, oh, because the technology itself, the computational process itself, machine learning, mm. is not new. It's not something that we uh, invented. People right. were using this type of things to identify cars or, or, or houses, etc. But for some reason, nobody was using these images that are freely available to identify and quantify greenery. So I think the first reaction was like, oh, this was so simple. Why nobody thought of this before? And this is quite important. Sometimes we do not solve problems for lack of data or lack lack Mm -hmm. of technology, but simply because we haven't paid attention enough to the issue. And in this case, it's street greenery. So the first reaction was kind of surprise. Oh, it was so simple. We should have done this. So And it was really cool. The second was a reaction of many cities saying, oh, I I also want this Tripedia for my Mm. own city. And initially, we tried to do it ourselves for more and more cities. But then at one point, we said, look, I think rather than the lamp keep doing more Tripedia for other cities. Why? If we simply put online the model, so it's an open source Python library, so you can download the images in your computer, run the model and calculate this this Tripedia, we call the green index view for your city. Mm -hmm. When we did that, we started getting, let's say a third wave of reactions, because then some cities, they, they got excited with the fact that they could do this. They did not need to rely on MIT to do anything, right. but it was simple enough right. that everybody could do it. Google put some, some walls on how you acquire data, et cetera. Some cities, they cannot yeah. share, but depending on what they, their agreement, then we can include their green index in our own uh, website. So now we have right. more than 30 cities in all continents.
1: And what were some of the, the surprising thing? I mean, I know we want to stay away from too many direct city-to-city comparisons, but overall, what were kind of some of the trends that you saw with Tripedia? You mentioned
2: something about this, this comparison, city-to-city comparison. This is very important because our intention was never to rank cities, but we did see some cities say, oh, I'm greener than the other city because Tripedia told me, or the opposite, oh, <laughs> Our city is not green enough because we're not well-ranked on Tripedia. It was not our intention. And why? Because we know there is something that we have never had the intention to do, is to quantify trees in parks. So we only quantify mm-hmm. trees along the streets. Parks are very important for cities. But when we go out, our first contact with the city usually are streets, not parks. Mm-hmm. Even those who live near big parks. It's not something that people tend to do in a daily basis, but whenever you walk out, you walk along streets. So our intention is that let's measure only greenery along streets. So the comparison was not on the table for us. On the other hand, there is a positive side of that because we are not comparing Boston with Toronto, for instance, however, Mm -hmm. we can And people should compare neighbors within the same city. So while some neighbors in Boston have many more trees along their roads than other neighborhoods, then the cities are saying, oh, is there a correlation with socioeconomic tracts of the, the neighborhoods? Any correlation with ethnic groups living there? What is happening with the city that we have greener areas why, whereas others don't have any street greenery?
0: You're listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. I'm Nadine Hala.
1: And looking at things like patterns, like where are there more private landowners versus in the city center? What does average lot size look like? And of course, what's interesting with street trees as well is we have this idea in our heads that, you know, street trees, because it's on a street, because the street is public infrastructure, meaning that those trees are also in the public realm. But oftentimes, of course, they're actually private trees. So I think that brings an interesting thing because there's this idea that if it's a private tree, well, it doesn't matter because you can't do anything about it. But in fact, if a tree is there, if whether it's on public or private land, it's offering that community all kinds of benefits. So it's nice to quantify those. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: So we've gotten the, the opportunity over the last year and a half to, to collaborate on more of these projects that intersect urban forestry and urban ecology and emerging technologies. We got an opportunity to collaborate on looking at how we might actually be able to use TripAdvisor reviews, what people think and might write on the internet about certain spaces. Why was that an interesting project for you to collaborate on? This
2: project, when you use TripAdvisor comments and and visitation to specific parks, this brought a new layer to the Tripedia approach to cities. Because as I mentioned, Tripedia was simply, in a very clever way, but was quantifying what we see as green spaces on a street. So we're just quantifying. But then when you came and we started working together with the lab and bringing these other layers, including TripAdvisor, for instance, then we could understand almost kind of the, the, the reason behind. So why people are visiting more this or that park? The intention behind the visitation was not part of Tripedia. But this is a very important component of how we live in cities. Our intention to go places and not to go places. This is one part of the, the project that we started doing together. As you know, we are launching a new project with you, led by you by the way, called diverse tree. And in this case, we thought, okay, behind the fact that we have more or less tree, we have to understand which type of tree cities are are planting. It brings me back to the very initial part of our conversation when we were talking about the diversity of people that comes to the lab. So most of us, we are either planners or computer scientists and mathematicians and happy enough to quantify, okay, there's, there's greenery here, period, fine, right. let's, let's move on. And then you, you came and said, okay, come on, N- not all trees are the same. <laughs> and perhaps <laughs> if we plant only a single species of trees all over the place, you are unbalancing the ecological diversity. And in diversity, what we did in both the paper and now the website, which is pretty nice, also will be out soon, is to understand exactly this diversity, how diverse trees that we have in cities are, and then in different countries, in different climate contexts, etc. cetera. So I think this is, again, another layer of of, of this effort from the Sensible Seed Lab to use data, most of them publicly available data, to understand cities in a way that can help cities themselves to transform how they plan their urban environment.
1: I think a piece of that was just true in Tripedia and true in Diversity as well is making sure that the research that we're putting out there is accessible and usable and replicable by citizens themselves. So having the entire workflow be open source, the paper is open access, and the data that we used is also open source as well. Mm. It provides with a little bit more of where the future might go that, as you said, you don't need MIT to help. These are tools that everyday citizens can also jump on board to determine their own urban forest diversity. Would you say that that this idea of of open source and open access, is that something quite central to the work that you do? It is.
2: And we are more and more, unfortunately, facing two challenges. One challenge is a good challenge that I think we, we should face, all of us, which is quite recently, we had some data that could be scrapped online that could bring some personal information. I I might not be able to identify someone specifically, but when people start putting some data online, et cetera, eventually by comparing different data sets, eventually I can more or less know who the the person or a very small group of people are. So I think facing these barriers, and in this case, I would say some social and ethical barriers, I think it's important to constrain even the research community to say, yeah, all of these data that are available now, they're fascinating, etc. but we have to put some limits. This, I think, mm-hmm. is a good thing. On the other hand, we have more and more companies collecting data in public environments and right. putting paid firewalls to access this data. So yeah. one example is going back to Tripedia. So Tripedia was built on the fact that Google Street Views, they are available. Correct? Correct. However, if you want to collect this data to do any sort of analysis, nobody's selling this data. This is Google's property. But even if you want to collect this data to do this type of analysis that are benefiting the cities themselves, now we cannot do. So the question comes: how much does Google pay to me to have the picture of my house available on their platform that they can eventually sell? They don't pay me nothing. How much do they pay to the cities to use the streets for which I paid with my tax money to have their cars driving? They don't pay us nothing. So how Mm -hmm. come they can sell this? Or how come at least they can block a public access to this data? We are now in this situation that, okay, at some point everything was more or less free and we had to put some moral barriers. And I think some companies use the same momentum to put monetary barriers.
1: Paywalls, yeah, because that's how we first noticed it on Tripedia was the visualization previews that would come up that all of a sudden the Google, where you could previously take a walk through the green street, those images were now blocked. It happened about a year or a year and a half ago that Google put up a paywall to be able to use its Google Street View, access the Pamaranas and the API. I think we can both agree that that's a shame because it it puts (laughs) puts another uh, barrier on being able to do analyses like this. Yeah. Maybe on a more personal level, Fabio, who is someone that's been influential to you on your on your journey so far, perhaps at the lab?
2: Everybody has a professor that inspired uh, you when you were young, and most of the time, I hope people have this one person who changed the way you, you see the world. Her name was Huchi. It's this idea of look at the same phenomenon that you see every day, but how you can Mm -hmm. see the same phenomenon with a a different eye, with twisting the perspective. And I think this changes everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is the the most important. More recently, some labs, we have a key figure. Okay, oh, you are there because of this person, and this person leads the lab. And at sensible. We have Carlo Ratti as a director, but what is nice about the Sensible City Lab is that it's not Carlo's lab. He's a director of Sensible City Lab. And what makes the lab, uh, I think, an inspiring environment is that this group of people that change frequently every year, every two, we have at least half of us changing. This is my inspiration. So, on the one hand, personally speaking, you said I had one key figure when I was entering college. And then the second phase is not a key figure anymore, but is this environment. We're all researchers, and we really don't care. As you know, you've been here for a year. We don't care if the person with whom you are talking to is a faculty or is an undergrad student. All of them are there trying to contribute with different knowledge. Therefore, I'm pretty sure that most of the undergrads that are working there, they know more about some things that I have no idea what they're talking about. And I think this is what makes... My second inspirational moment in the in my yeah. career.
1: Being in the position you are, you kind of have to keep tabs on all recent technological trends. Are there any either technologies or initiatives that you've seen that use technology in an application to urban ecology that get you particularly excited?
2: I do, but I have no clue exactly how this technology uh, works. But I think this is so fascinating. It is how we start embedding some biological components in building materials. Hmm. So one example that MIT did recently is still in kind of a research phase. In this case, it's not a, a biological component embedded in the material, but we have glass, which are 88% transparent but Mm -hmm. they absorb as much energy as the most effective solar panel. Meaning that this is great because then I can see through the glass, but it's still basically a transparent solar panel. So if we imagine that instead of quantifying the solar potential of a city and we need mainly to rely on rooftops, eventually we might have the whole envelope of the city as a, Potential solar power harvest. Process.
1: That's really exciting. I had no idea that that uh, that's on the market already.
2: No, it's not. We have some technology that they have a kind of a transparency of sixty percent, so it's not sure. Good, but yeah. if we have ninety percent of transparency, yeah, let's let's go that's for it. That's good
1: enough. Yeah, 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 very cool. If people want to connect with you or with the lab, how can they best find you online?
2: So I think the best way is is going to our website, sensible.mit.edu. There you have my contact, but more importantly, I think you're going to have all the spectrum of research that we do. And we update it constantly. So we just launched a project last week where we we try to to understand segregation in cities like Stockholm. And by the way, we saw that... During COVID-19, we found people even more segregated based on, on socioeconomic. so people were not living in their neighborhoods, etc. But the only spots that brought people from different backgrounds together uh, were either transit hubs, but mm-hmm. also parks.
1: This is very nice. That makes me very happy. Yeah. I'm looking forward to sharing that once it comes out. The last question, Fabio, that I ask all of my guests is to reflect on what the Internet of Nature means to them.
2: I think this is quite important for me also because I I think Tripedia brought me to reflect and also our work now in diversity. Why in our cities, why we are still separating what is built environment and what's left from the built environment? Mm -hmm. Then we put some plants or trees or whatever. So I think this integration between a kind of an internet of life, let's say, Mm -hmm. that we can have the digital technologies pervading our built environment, but also how we can have this this network of things, data, and nature mixing together.
1: And hopefully leading us to also help people to better reconnect with it at the end of the day.
2: Yeah. Well, thank
1: you so much, Fabio, for coming on. This was really fun. Thank you all. Bye.
0: Thank you very much to Fabio Duarte from MIT Sensible City Lab, and thank you for listening. Join me next week when I'll be talking to Eric Rawls from Earth.com and PlantSnap. This podcast is brought to you by Connecting Nature Enterprise Platform, an innovation of the Connecting Nature Project, which is funded by the European Union Horizon 2020 Framework Program. This podcast was produced by Little Red Flames.